Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. Today's sermon is From Hatred to Love, Paul's Testimony. From Hatred to Love, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. The Word of God reads, I thank him who has given me strength, this is Paul talking or writing, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to, to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted in ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as a foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray once again. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather, even as Carlos prayed earlier. Thank you for the opportunity to gather freely without persecution. In other places, people are being persecuted for their faith, even today. And we thank you for the opportunity we have. We pray that as we have read the scriptures, sing praises to your name, and now consider an exhortation from the scriptures that you, by your Holy Spirit, who breathed out the word, may bring illumination to our minds, to the mind of the one who speaks, and to us who hear, and as Bereans, that we may verify that everything is according to Scripture, and that you may be honored and Christ exalted. In his name we pray, amen. amen. The life and the thoughts of Saul of Tarsus have been an anchor to my own faith, Many times in which doubts and darkness assail my mind. And I wonder, is this true? Am I really following some kind of fable, some kind of conspiracy, global conspiracy crafted centuries, millennia ago, and I'm just following this religion because mankind is religious, And my mind is brought back to the faith because of Paul. When you consider the intellectual prowess of this person, his ardent theology, the way he crafts his arguments, the way he explains in in affectionate logic God's redemptive plan from the Old Testament And he links links Genesis all the way through Messiah. When I read that, and then I consider who he was and how he came to face, my thoughts get organized and I come back to my senses. 
In this text, we delve into Paul's emotions. We delve into the recesses of his soul. He shares his personal testimony of coming to Christ. And in those instances in the New Testament that we find details about Paul's personal life, we find a lot in the book of Acts, recorded by Luke. We find some at the beginning of Galatians. We find a lot in 2 Corinthians and here in 1 Timothy. He sort of opens up about him. There's something that is prevalent. Paul makes little of himself in his personal testimonies and much of Christ. His testimonies are not bragamonies. He seeks to exalt Christ. There's an, the exception of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he starts boasting about who he is and his labors, and his learning, and his knowledge, and his revelations. And then writing in the letter, he says, but I've made a fool man who is the framework of any systematic and biblical theology. His personal testimony of coming to Christ. A man who thought of himself the last and least of the apostles. A man who thought of himself to be the least of all the saints. And in this passage, he calls himself chief sinner. De los pecadores, soy el jefe. Among all sinners, I am chief. Lynn, pecher, je suis le premier. That's what he says. No one is higher than me when it comes to sinning. The passage we just read is a circular passage. I put that on the screen for your own, well, the guys are putting it there. But remember that when we read Paul, contrary to what we have been trained to think, we are not reading a Western writer. Paul doesn't write in outlines. We outlined our sermons to make them palatable and understandable, but Paul is a wisdom teacher from the East. So he writes like you find in the Old Testament, like you find poetry in the Bible, like you find in Proverbs or in the Psalms, either in parallelisms or in circles. And in this passage, if you read it, you really find that circle. The blue circles are where he speaks about God's mercy, and that's his emphasis. The black circles are where he restates about him being chief sinner. And how grace met him in his vileness, in his sinfulness, in his hatred, in his persecution of Christians. But he caps it up. He crowns it with that statement, that doxology, that eulogy in verse 17 where he glorifies God to the king eternal, the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. To him be the glory forever. That is a reason why he wrote that. Now... In practical terms, we should learn something from that way of Paul writing his testimony. And I already said it. We should make little of ourselves and make much of Christ whenever we have to share how God brought us to the Lord. When we ask someone to share their testimony because they're going to be baptized and going to be received into the membership, one of the things we tell them is write it down. And as you write it, remember, it is not about you. We don't want to hear your biography. We want to hear how the Lord saved you, how you came to faith in Jesus, 
the story, we want it to be about God, not about you. The saying that Paul quotes at the beginning of the passage or in the middle of it, truthful and faithful saying was a refrain among Christians. A refrain that apparently was circulated in the Christian community. And that refrain was, Christ Jesus came into the world, sinners to save. And perhaps Paul added, among them, I am the chief. Or perhaps everybody said, I am the first. We, we don't know exactly where the saying stops and where Paul added his own portion. But when you read it, you say, well, Paul says he was the first of sinners because he didn't know me. If he knew me, he would have said, well, I'm second. I'm behind Edwin. Because every person who encounters the grace of a holy God, of an infinitely righteous and holy God, who will in no way leave the innocent or the guilty as innocent, but then is declared righteous by faith, understands, no, no, no one has greater sins than me. And since nobody knows me better than me, I know what I'm talking about. So Paul quotes the saying and makes that statement. Now in the whole passage, there is a tacit miracle. There's something underlying that we, we not always perceive because we are so isolated from the historical time and the context of the text. And the tacit miracle in the thanksgiving is that this Jewish rabbi called a man whom he knew even according to the flesh, because he was a Pharisee when Jesus was alive, he knew who Jesus of, Nazarene, of, Naz, of Nazareth was. After his conversion, a Jewish Pharisee rabbi called Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord. We do not perceive the magnitude of that miracle. That alone holds my faith in everything I read in the Bible. Because this man understood what exactly is the correct approach, relationship, and embracing of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. Now in the text, there's a before and after. I showed to you the circle so you would see that it is not exactly a succession of thoughts, but it's a repetition of thoughts. But in that circle of repetition, there is a before and after. The before is that Paul describes how he was in his days when he was dead in sins, despite his being so religious. Remember what he says in Philippians 3. According to the law, I was blameless. I was trained by Gamaliel. I'm a Benjamite. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. The people in my nation would say that I was blameless according to the standards of the law. But describing himself in that before when he was very religious, but he was not a person who knew Christ as Savior, he starts by saying, I was a blasphemer. The word can mean many things, but basically blaspheming is speaking evil. You blaspheme of God when you speak evil of God. But you can also blaspheme when you twist spiritual realities, when you twist truth. In our day and age, when we get this pseudoscience that says 
Gender is a construct, but it's not biological. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with having XY chromosomes. It has to do with how you identify. Well, that is also a form of blaspheming because it is twisting, it is perverting, it is sort of warping moral or spiritual realities. And he says, I was also a persecutor. The word in English, hubris, comes from the same root of this word. It means a, an insolent person. The, those of you who read the, the NAS, the New American Standard, have it as violent aggressor. But there is also something more in this word, persecutor. It is the person who felt or feels pleasure in damaging others. Some sort of um, psychotic, evil individual sociopath who would enjoy seeing others suffer. And Paul says, I was that. I was one who would enjoy causing pain to others. And they would do it in a nasty, blatant, hard spirit. He doesn't stop there. He says, well, but I did it in ignorance and in unbelief. Now, some people may say, well, that's why God had mercy on him, because he didn't know. I'm not so sure, because elsewhere, Paul writes that ignorance is not an excuse for culpability. And you're driving on the road, and, you, and the cop stops you. Do you know why I stopped you? No, sir, I don't know. You were doing 45, and this is a 25 zone. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. They say, okay, go ahead, keep going. Unless you're my wife, we can talk herself out of any ticket. But if it's me, he writes me the ticket. Because ignorance does not excuse, does not remove culpability. You cannot plead ignorance to break the law and be found guilty of it. So when Paul says, I did it ignorant and in unbelief, I don't think he was claiming, well, I had an excuse. He's simply describing a condition that elsewhere he speaks about, even in Romans 9, when he says that the heart he had for the Jews was that they were zealous for God, but they didn't without science, without knowledge. When a person invokes Alihu Akbar and blows themselves or blows others, they are honestly doing for God. By the way, Allah, Elah, Elohim, Semitic languages, God. <laughs> they are doing it for the wrong God, but they are doing it for God. They are zealous. They are sincere. They are devout to the point of giving their lives. But they are completely erred. And that is Paul's point. So when he says, my heart bleeds for Israel, I wish I myself were anathema, separated from Christ. To save my brethren is because he knew exactly what it felt to be zealous for God and yet do it completely in ignorance. Now, why so much hatred to Christians? That's something that we don't connect with. Why was this guy so opposing to Christianity? Underlying his hatred is this reality of Israel's history and you've Heard me say this before. Guys, I don't have the clock. You know that, right? Okay. 
So it means that if I preach too long, it's their fault, not mine. Just saying. So you know whom to blame. Okay, thank, until 6 o'clock. Okay. You'll leave anyways at noon. I know. <laughs> Underlying the, the hatred of Paul for Christianity, there's this historical fact of what had happened to Israel as a result of idolatry. The kingdom split back in the days of Rehoboam and uh, Jeroboam after Solomon's death. And the kingdom of the north took ten tribes and they started their idolatry process until Assyria came and took them and they were deported into exile. Ten tribes were lost. For about 200 years more, the kingdom of the south remained with two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But they too became idolaters. They too started worshiping Baal and Asherah and all of those gods with minor G, small g of the surrounding nations. And they too in three stages were taken in exile into Babylon. So here we have a guy who is a Pharisee. The Pharisee started to form after the days of Ezra. When he came back with the exiles, when Cyrus the king led the, gave the decree of allowing them to go back into their lands. And he did it with many peoples, by the way, not just with Israel. Cyrus was a liberating monarch. And when Israel comes back to their land, to Jerusalem, Ezra comes back and the priests start to teach these exiles who did not even speak Hebrew to translate the Torah that was in Hebrew into the Aramaic they spoke and started teaching them the ways of God. And for 500 years plus, there was one thing that didn't happen in Israel at all, idolatry. That was the sin that was eradicated from the Hebrew national social life. Now comes this Jesus... (laughs) And these first Christians are Jews. And what are these first Christians who are Jews doing? Worshipping a man, calling him God. Because they said, well, he claimed to be God. In the mind of Paul, this was completely unacceptable. He was protecting his nation. He was not only a Yahweh worshiper, a Torah teacher, a defender of the faith of Israel, but above all things, he wanted to prevent his people from going back into exile, surrounded by Gentiles, under the power of imperial Rome. He didn't want them to be lost again. So he fights with everything he has, to defend his nation, to defend the name of God. To what extreme? Listen to what Luke records that Paul said about himself in the book of Acts. I was convinced, this is Paul talking, I was convinced that I had to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I, only, I not only locked up many of the saints, remember saints, Christians, in prison, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You find that in Acts 7 when Stephen is stoned and they brought their clothes to the feet of Paul. 
And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I don't think we can relate to this. But this is the fury of this man protecting the name of Yahweh to the point of dragging people and punishing them publicly and approving and casting his vote for their being stoned to death. That's why he called himself after conversion. I am the least of all the saints. Can you imagine the weight in Paul's psyche when he came to know Christ of the people he lashed, of the people he forced to blaspheme, of the people he tortured, of the people he, if he did not kill them themselves and he didn't throw stones or cast stones himself, at least he approved of them being stoned. Can you imagine the weight of Paul sitting with saints, poor people, peasants for the most part, singing hymns to Jesus and thinking, I used to kill them. I used to persecute them. I used to lash them. The least of all the saints. When he was talking about the apostles, he says, I'm a stillborn. I'm one who, who was aborted. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. That was the weight in his mind. I persecuted the church of God, he tells the Colossians. I even tried to destroy it. Just think about it. I made my mission to destroy the church of God that now I'm preaching to and helping build. The deity of Christ was the cause of Paul's hatred. Not only Paul, any Jew, especially a Pharisee. You may remember the Sanhedrin trial of Jesus when the high priest, the night before his crucifixion, asked him, tell us plainly, are you Messiah? Are you the anointed? And Jesus says to him, yes, you have said it. Not only that, from now on, you will see the heavens open and you will see the Son of Man, me, sitting at the right hand of God. And the high priest tears his clothes in the middle of everyone and says, you have heard it, you have heard it, blasphemy. We don't need any more witnesses. You've heard the blasphemy. What blasphemy? That he made himself to be God. In John 10, a similar instance. The Jews want to stone him and they are ready to throw. And Jesus says, for what good work are you guys stoning me? And they told him, we're not stoning you for any good work. We've seen all your miracles. And we're fine with them. We are stoning you for the blasphemy. John 10 records that you, being a man, make yourself to be God. The deity of Christ was not an invention of the church. The deity of Christ was something he proclaimed to himself. And if you remember C.S. Lewis' trilemma, you have to reckon with that. Jesus was either a liar, he was either crazy, 
for he was who he said he is. And C.S. Lewis says, well, a liar going to a cross for his lie? Crazy? The man who preached the Sermon on the Mount? The man who taught us the Lord's Prayer? Jesus of Nazareth? Of Nazareth? Crazy? That doesn't jive. What's your option? He is who he said he is. God incarnate. What is the after of Paul in our text? Well, he describes it in the passage we read. He says, I was overtaken by mercy. The verb to persecute is a verb dioko in the Greek. The, the idea of dioko, you've seen those movies. A, I saw one this morning that went by me. Police car chasing someone. Helicopter, and you see the guy, I mean, the famous O.J. Simpson's chase. You see all these cars right behind the guy until they overtake him. That's the idea of the verb dioko. And Paul says, I was that to Christians. But I was overtaken by mercy. Because while he was chasing Christians, Jesus was chasing him. What was the dialogue on the way to Damascus? So, so, why do you chase me? Why are you persecuting me? It is a hard thing to kick against the goads. And who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are chasing. Isn't that fascinating? That Paul is chasing Christians, but Jesus says, you're chasing me. You're persecuting me. You're fighting me because you're trying to fight my people and fighting them is fighting me. The torturer who covered people's backs with lashes, 39 lashes or 40 lashes minus one. That torturer who covered people's backs with the scars and the wounds of lashing, he says, I was covered with overflowing grace and mercy. Grace is a gift, undeserved, unearned. I cannot pay for it. Somebody brings you a birthday gift. And how much is it? You would not insult a person with that, right? Grace. Paul says, I was overtaken by grace. And I was overtaken and found by mercy. And what is mercy? Receiving the good we don't deserve. It is being given what we haven't earned, what we could not possibly pay back. It is all free. The hater received the faith and the love of Jesus. That's what he says. The love of Christ overtook me. I received the love and faith of Jesus. Just a reminder that he says, I received. It is God who always takes the initiative. You cannot miss that. Anywhere you read the gospel, any testimony, reading casually, you cannot miss this reality. God takes the initiative. I think it was Spurgeon who said, if salvation depended on me, if I really had to keep my salvation and work hard at it, in five minutes I'd lose it. Thank God it doesn't depend on me. 
It was purchased on the cross. Paul says, I received the faith and the love of Christ. And the angry bigot was found by Jesus' patience. Because he says, Jesus showed in me all his patience. When I hear the word, the patience of God, my mind goes to the Passover. Peshach, Pasqua in Spanish. And Passover is what? Is God passing over. What happened that day in Egypt? You put the blood in the lintels. Funny, the blood had the form of a cross. Lintel and the two columns. And the angel of death will see the blood and pass by that house and go to the next. Whomever had the blood would not be killed. His firstborn would not be killed. That is passing over. That's where Passover comes from. That's exactly what happens when we are forgiven. God passes over who we really are. It's not that we did something that sort of pleased God. Let me do this little ritual here. Let me do this little act here. And somehow I will earn that merit. No, God passes by. Remember the confession of the thief on the cross? The one we call the good thief? Tradition says that his name was Demas. We don't know those things, but maybe they are true. They are written somewhere. Well, what did he say? He said to the other guy, they were both insulting Jesus. Both. And he says to the other guy, don't you fear God? We are here on this cross because of what our deeds deserve. But this man has, not, has done nothing evil. So he's recognizing we deserve to be crucified. And then he turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And what is the answer? Today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, I will remember you. You're going to heaven And was he a Baptist, a Catholic, an Adventist, a Methodist? What was he? Nothing. Did he have the 1689 Confession of Faith or the Westminster? What did he have? None. Did he he get baptized like like Francesca is going to get baptized? No. What did he do? Nothing. Repented and believed and received free mercy right there on the cross. That is the name of the game. That's what we preach. That is madness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. How can you tell me? I've been a devout Jew all my life. You're going to tell me that this thing is free? Well, it's not free. The price is unpayable. It is the blood of Christ. It's not free. Whenever somebody tells you salvation is free, it ain't free. It doesn't have any cost to you. But it costs God his only beloved. And then here's Paul, chief sinner, the angry bigot, and he says the overarching purpose of all of that is the glory of God. That's why the gospel is. It has three purposes somebody has written. And I couldn't find the author, but at least I give credit to the guy or the lady, whomever it was who wrote it. The three Three purposes of the gospel. To save sinners, of course, (laughs) we're lost, we need salvation. Secondly, to show God's great mercy. Thirdly, (laughs) to bring glory to God. Do you want to know who God is like? Do you want to know what God is like? Look at the gospel. That's the God we serve. The God who takes the initiative to save those who do not deserve it. 
On what basis? The pure affection of his will. Pure, unmixed love. That's the God of Scripture, and that's whom God praises. And the gospel is a proclamation, not a prescription. The cool thing is to tell you how to live your best life, to be some kind of these motivators. And some of them are awesome motivators. They are great speakers. I could mention them by names. You know who they are. But if you hear what they say, it's always something about you, how you, how you can be better, how God has this plan for you, how God has these purposes and these things for you to thrive, to shine, to make it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is proclaiming, you're thirsty? Come, drink of the waters. You're hungry? Come, buy bread without money. Come to the fountain. Come to Jesus. But that's not too popular. And the whole point of the gospel is that it reaches the worst. That's why Paul says, if I was forgiven, anyone can be forgiven. Last week I was talking to Claudia and to Angelina about the unpardonable sin. It's funny that every true believer at some point thinks he or she can commit or has committed the unpardonable sin. Let me put you at ease. It's impossible for any person here today to commit that sin. If I understand the Bible right, I may be wrong, but I'm open to be instructed. Jesus issued that statement to the Pharisees who accused him of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebul. And Jesus cast out demons by the Holy Spirit. That's why he said, any sin will be forgiven the children of men. Any sin. But not the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Namely, saying to Jesus, you cast out thy demon, that demon, not because of the Spirit, but in the name of the devil. We could not do that. Therefore, since we cannot commit that one, because Jesus is already ascended in heaven, then be at ease. Any manner of sin will be forgiven the children of men. Of course, tacitly, if they repent and they believe. Abortion is not the unpardonable sin. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. Stealing or killing is not the unpardonable sin. There ain't any unpardonable sin. We are guilty of them all by birth. We are born sinners. If there's one unpardonable sin is that the first commandment is thou shalt have no other gods before you. And we have so many gods by the thousands. That too is forgiven. That's the gospel. And the gospel is the greatest eulogy to God. God didn't send his son, beloved, to give us what we already wanted without him. I know it's popular. It's Alex and Yali, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they started attending one of those uh, Para de Sufrir churches in Mexico, right? And if you see those churches, you see the TV, oh, I had this financial problem, and I started coming to church, and I gave some money, and God gave me a house. It's not the gospel, man. God is not in the business of giving people houses or cars or wiping their credit clean. 
or getting your 585 credit to 740. That's not the name of the game for God. You can get that out there. You don't need to be a Christian. You can be an atheist and get that. God is in the business, not of fulfilling our dreams. He's in the business of saving people from eternal damnation through his son. That is the purpose of any testimony. Adam lost Eden when he sinned. That's why we live in this restless state that nothing fills us. I was driving to church this morning and saw the little Amazon uh, van. It says, warning, the contents of this van cause happiness. It's true. How long? You're just waiting for your thing. Oh, here's the Amazon package. You open it. My new phone. And then you start using it a week later. It's not a new phone anymore because there's a new one that came out. That's life. My home remodeling, my new car, my new dress, my new clothing, shoes, my new boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband, whatever it is, you're just, just trying to get back to Eden because Adam lost it. And you're restless. And Eden is found at the cross. Adam traded God for a tree. And Jesus on a tree brought us back to God if we believe. That's the name of the game. So there comes a eulogy to the king of ages. There's Paul saying, to the one who stands above space and time. Some scientists say, well, the universe is a circle. And inside that circle you have every event, every space, every matter. Everything is all there together. Well, yes, that's what the Bible says about God. He stands above time. He's the king of ages. Immortal. He can't die. He's eternal. He exists before that first bang that brought the first second kilogram space, whatever. And yet, being immortal, he died on the cross. Being the king of ages, transcendent, he became imminent in his son Jesus, invisible. No one can ever see God ever. Jesus said that. No one can see God. I know those books sell a lot at the airport stand. I saw God. I went to heaven. May makes good money. But Jesus says no one has ever seen God. So if your guy on TV saw him, you decide who you want to believe. The guy with the airplane who says that God told him to change the airplane for a faster one. Or Jesus who said, no one has ever seen God, ever. Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. That's enough for me. You know what God says? Moses, I have to get you in the crevice of a rock, cover you, pass by you, and I'll let you see something. Because nobody can see me and live. But Jesus says, the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. He was talking about himself. Did you want to see God? See Jesus. Read Jesus. Know Jesus. The only God, Paul says. And to me, it's fascinating that God is only one. But you know how he is designated in the Hebrew? Elohim, the plural for God. And don't ask me to explain it because I don't understand it, but it's one God. But there are three consciousness or three persons or three, three in one 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And to him be glory forever and ever and to him alone. And Isaiah 42, 9 says, Yahweh, that is my name, Adonai. And I do not share my glory with anyone. God doesn't share no being in the universe. No angel, no archangel, no cherubim, no seraphim. No one can share into the glory forever of that only one God. So what's the conclusion? Make little of self. Make much of Christ. Good to remember our origins. Testimonies have that power. They help us remember who we are. You see, I have this problem. Perhaps you don't have it. I'm sorry if I say something that you have no idea what it is. That day you come into the office and you read that memo, such and such has been promoted to vice president director. And you've been in the company for some decades. And you think, that idiot? (laughs) Really? Why not me? I know better. I know more. I should have been, it should have been me. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. But sometimes those things happen to me. And then mysteriously God reminds me when I would have to walk through a puddle of water and do this to my feet. My wife teases me to this day. If I walk through water, immediately I do that to my feet. Because I would have holes in my shoe soles and I didn't want my socks to get wet. And God reminds me. Where the heck do you think you are? Do you remember where I got you from? It happened to David. David is in his palace. King, God has blessed him. And David calls the prophet and says, uh, You know, uh, Nathan, um, poor God, he doesn't have a house. Look at me in this palace. And the tabernacle is in a little tent. Um, I would like to build a house for God. And Nathan says, oh, king, yes, whatever you want. And he goes home and God says, go back, Nathan, and tell this to David. I took you from behind the sheep. And I gave you glory, power, defeating your enemies. I made you who you are. Who have I asked to build me a house? When have I said I want a house? That's why when Solomon built the temple, said the heavens of the heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So it is good in testimonies to remember where we come from. So we put ourselves in our place. But this testimony of Paul reminds us something. You cannot be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's what he wrote in Romans. Perhaps like me, you had a father that you could never please. doesn't matter how hard I tried. Couldn't please my dad. Now things are reversed. It doesn't matter how hard you try, you cannot displease God if you are in Christ. If you are seeing through the lens of him who purchased you on the cross, you can try your best or your worst. You can't disappoint God. Paul Washer says, The most powerful tool in evangelism. You know what it is? Forensic justification. Romans 5.1 Therefore, justified by faith, we have 
peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, bless your word. Encourage your people. And above all things, be magnified. You are the only true God. Invisible, almighty, the only wise God. To you alone belongs the glory forever and ever. Bless your people. Bless your word. Encourage the saints. Even if they are discouraged by their own sin, may your spirit take your word and surround them and overtake them with your mercy and your grace. It is in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.